The computer hears all. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, but are still lovingly delivered. We will not censor ourselves, so it may be fucking PG-13 some days. Your tour guides today are John Schmidt, Deirdre Schween, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 195, but did you learn anything? (laughs) And would you advise anything as well? And would you do it again if you could start five years ago? (laughs) Here we are at the end of 2023, and I'm bewildered a little bit. I still have friends that you you have a podcast out with 100 episodes. I'm like, dear goodness me, I think we're almost to 200. And Mm -hmm. I think in this time of come this passing of summer to fall, in the words of Dorothy Parker, it is manners to issue a statement as to what you got out of it all. And I think the reflection unnerves me and pronouncements I dodge as I can, I think as memory serves me, there was nothing more funny than a podcast, really. I don't <laughs> I think that's those the, are the original words. Well, Dorothy was, you know, not quite ahead of her time, but she wanted to me. She was a knight of the round table of the purest kind, a wit so sharp, it was snarky and could cut anyone for one perfect limousine. One perfect limousine. Thinking back of all the hun- over 100 people we've chatted with that had many different creativity in, we've had writers of music, of film, of books, of short stories, of marketing material. What writing technique most interests you, John? Ooh, the spot, the spot, the improvisational spot. It is the last podcast I was on with Mademoiselle Shauna, or probably Madame Shauna, uh, our, who we discovered in the coffee shop. You discovered in the coffee Shana shop. Shauna McGinnis. Shauna <laughs> McGinnis, who, with her theater background, which a number of us share, writes as an improvisational exercise and then has to take notes on what happened. So I went ahead and tried that, and it's disgustingly easy, and uh-huh. I'm in awe. And I need to buy her, a, well, she doesn't drink coffee, she drinks Diet Pepsi, but I'll buy her a, a tasty beverage. A tasty beverage next time. If you're listening, Shauna, just, you know, I'll hit you up at the coffee shop and I could get you an affogato. But the, the whole making it part of the theater, because my second favorite is simply just taking a class from Carol Wolf and mm. learning how to write uh, play scripts. And she also discussed the difference between screenplays and play scripts. And it was an amazing class uh, online, and I highly recommend it if you can get in. I don't think she taught over the summer because she spent time in Europe, but I, I hope it comes back. Do you used to write for the stage, at least, didn't you? Yeah, honestly, the thing that I found most fascinating is the we started with Pantsers and Plotters, mm-hmm. and then we got Gardeners. And now we've got improvisation, which is not really either of those. No, it's not. It's the the writing I did was always taking mostly Shakespeare, but taking established scripts and twisting them to match a theme. So it was very plotty because we literally had a script to work from. But the idea that there are writers out there literally coming from opposite sides of the ring <laughs> and still ending up with fabulous works is intense. It's true. And I, I kind of owe a debt. I had started Jordan, you know, Jordan, my friend, the filmmaker, 
had said, hey, why don't you write, you know, horror is easy. Everybody likes a good horror movie. They generally at least pay for themselves. We could we could try a full-length feature film. So I started, and after I sent him the first 20 pages, he wrote back, he said, Jeannie, this is a period piece. I'm like, yeah. He's like, that's so much more money if you because that's costumes, that's sets, that's details. That's, you know, if you want to do something that you can afford to do if you're just starting out, you you set it somewhere that's got stuff you've got lying around the house. I think he said shit lying around the barn, but <laughs> and that made me sort of think it's like, okay, if I wanted to write something that was easier and quicker and just could do improvisational locally, I would set it in here and now, as opposed to if I want to create something that is in any way our history or a world building or a fantasy or a science or something else, that's where you got to get your tent poles, as Carol used to say, you need to get your... Uh, and and other ones, That that's a very, that's a good writing technique. I'm going to slide to the next question because I think you need to be asked this, Jeannie. Hmm. What do you want to write next? <laughs> what do I want to write next? I'm working on two different things. My resolution for 2024 was I have two finished novels, and I had a challenge breaking into the the thriller genre. I don't know a lot of thriller writers, and I'd never been to ThrillerCon, and getting even the attention of an agent to send something back to query letters was like most of the times you hardly even got an answer. And some of them found him unsympathetic, even when I went out to Jeff Lindsay's, mm -hmm. Lindsay's artist, because I know I have an unsympathetic character. So I've decided that I'm going to finish those up, get my sister to do an amazing cover for them. I have friends that have said they will help me finish up my last minute knits and editing and put it into format appropriate for Amazon. And those two, I'm just going to let be me. So you're going to self-publish them? I'm going to self-publish those two. Or small press, if there's a friend with a small press that I wow them with my sister's fantastic cover and the cool story, but not really going the traditional agent route. And I'm going to do that this 2024. And I'm falling into, I had always intended from my, my Barnabas novel, which is set in 1901 England, I'd always planned to get him to America. And mm -hmm. the first chapter is off to the writing group. There's no take backsies now. They can say, this is how I need to get him in the first chapter back home from the north of England, heartbroken, the saddest man in all of England, and get him on a boat and send him off to America. So, Where is he going to be the saddest man in all of America? It's a much bigger country. You got to. It, it is, it but down. Pittsburgh which somebody colorfully called Hell with the Lid Off in 1901. How, <laughs> how do we not have a book then called The Lidless Hell? <laughs> so We will have a book. Of Barnabas in America? Barnabas in America. Barnabas goes to save the self-proclaimed Queen of America, or the colonies. We like the kid. <laughs> so that's, that's what I'm going to work on. And so I have finished things, and I know that I can finish things, but I have not written anything during this time of COVID. So... I'm going to finish some things. It's interesting you say that because my sister, who has been self-publishing for years now, had the same sort of writing became a bridge too far and editing became the thing that she hated. But just recently, she's like, you know what? I don't actually hate editing. I kind of enjoy cleaning stuff up. And she has gone through and done another edit and is now working on, you know, putting it out. And it's, yeah, there's, there's a change in the air. <laughs> 
there is a change in the area, palpable. I mean, we are all very, I don't know about you guys, but 2023 sucked for, you know, absent friends. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to 2024 just for the virtue of being different. I mean, there's interesting trends afoot. And it's funny that everybody's been kind of hinting at them and we've had pieces of them from different people we've talked to. And the different trends, I think we're seeing it all the way through all of my favorite fantasy authors and science fiction. There are lovely, lovely trends that I find very positive and encouraging. Like what? Like diversity and representation, like underheard voices, like there are more neurodiversity in the heroes and heroines coming out in books. And I think it allows people that are anxious or insecure or self-deprecating or whatever your challenge is, you can kind of see yourself. I I know you'll appreciate this one, John. Ursula Ursula Vernon's books. (laughs) Paladin. There's people I read every but thing of. I read all of Katie Murphy's stuff. I read Ursula Vernon's. I read Sean and McGuire's. But her characters are middle-aged, not skinny, not necessarily the most beautiful in an abstract across the world sense. And there's some serious neuroses going on in there. Some serious neuroses exposed. Yeah. I, I mean. And and that can, it's okay and you can still be a hero. Yeah, you can hardly say that the serial killers that some people write about don't have psychoses or neuroses. Well, whether you like Batman versus Superman, there was one theme about it that I found very powerful. The theme was that good people can be manipulated into doing horrifically bad things. And as we knew kind of from the Robert Barron person of, you know, period, which is still going on today, fabulously rich, horrible human beings can still do great good. And sometimes do, but often. And some perish in the bottom of the but you know. Or don't. How about you, Dee? Do you have any evil plans for next year? Oh, the only thing I'm really hoping to write next year is an employment contract. So, you know. Hey. Hey. Somebody should. I I shill this woman. If you're listening out now and you're thinking I need somebody that can do anything, hire Deirdre for the love of God. She's amazing. Yeah, this is a labor of love. And she does a lot of the unseen labor calmly, competently, and without. And we love her for it. And we really love her for it. So. But yeah, it would be interesting if this is the year that not only the less seen heroes, but the less liked heroes become a thing. There's always been books out there, stories out there, because every media, where you've got truly evil main characters or where they're focusing on that. And, you know, U.S. Films started doing that with the we have to give every bad guy a sympathetic backstory. And it's like, no, no, we don't. There can be bad guys. (laughs) Can we give the good guys, the sympathetic backstory, even if they're not young and pretty and rich and skinny. And <laughs> David Drake was taken aback when I told him that my favorite character, oh my God, I loved Joaquin Steuben. Also, he pronounced my pronunciation of Steuben. <laughs> but I'm like, in a way, it's like I understood him. He made perfect sense to me as a character. In ways that, you know, Aloysius Hammer, I don't know if he makes complete sense to me or not. I mean, I kind of get it and I kind of don't, but Steuben, I get it. I'm here because I'm loyal to that guy over there. (laughs) I'm going to do the best because trust no one, you know, 
confirm your own kills here. You just liked that he was the snappiest dresser in the series. And the snappiest dresser in the series. And I think he fibbed me and he was secretly still alive, but he took that secret to the beyond. So fair fairings. Well, he was also a revolutionary different character when he came, showed up on the scene. He was. There were, there had never been a, well, let's face it, he was gay without was really. Openly, unapologetically <laughs> gay. Because it didn't really matter that much in the story, except for another thing for some people to demonize him over. But that's very much a sideline. And that leads me to my next question. Uh, I have a tasty beverage here, and I raise a toast to the man who gave us such vivid characters, David Drake. David Drake. Clink. There's a wider representation in... One of the things that I liked about is the Marvels movie that came out. They had the pretty blonde, the pretty black woman, the pretty Muslim girl, and that they all went and did it together. And I think if I hadn't really chatted with Dr. Asultani and read her book on, wow, how do we culturally shape different things? It made me, between her and the way that Dr. Oh. Dr. Gordon gave us Ursula Parrott, the woman writer at the turn of the century. Ah. And I realized how much weaponized nostalgia is at work in what people write and publish and produce in movies and plays and, you know, leave it to Beaver. What a great big lie leave it to Beaver was. (laughs) Well, look at all the comedies. It is enough. Look at all the comedies that were based before the 50s, where you have uh, uh, certainly the most egregious one was um, the German prisoner of war camp done yeah. as a comedy. Yeah. But there are so many, all those cowboy movies uh, just whited out that landscape completely and also made it much more violent, much more negative than the reality of it. Although it was violent and negative, it certainly wasn't everyone shooting everyone all the time, but that's what you'll believe if you. And that, of course, came from stories to movies. Yeah. And what's interesting is uh, I was having a conversation just recently about the fact that there were more black characters in the Dukes of Hazard than there were in Friends. Yeah. Friends, set in New York City. <laughs> Dukes of Hazard, set in unknown southern town. Which of those would you expect more characters in? And yet it wasn't even considered an oddity at the time. Dr. Ramsey, who talked to us about Black music history and musicology, he talked a lot about race and regionalism and sexism. And I loved that he said what what music theory needs, he says, is more Black women to study it and write about it. Because it is the absolute truth that these different perspectives are needed, both in a backward-looking perspective, but I... Also in a forward-projecting perspective. I don't feel that I would be perfectly qualified to go to France and write a history of France. And yet there are so many mediocre British men over the years that have done that very thing. <laughs> the <laughs> I shall I shall go and loot these tombs. I shall go and carry off these treasures in Indiana Jones. I want somebody to write a modern day Indiana Jones of <laughs> this belongs in a museum in its homeland. I want him raiding the British Museum. <laughs> What's uh, something well, that sounds British but isn't British? The British Museum. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it was it was an interesting tie-in with the talk we had with Nancy Jane on colonialism and discovering new civilizations through a more diverse lens than we've ever had. If the male gaze that Kate Elliott talked about 
was white, heterosexual, um, sound of mind and body. Neurotypical. Neurotypical. Then what does it mean if you meet aliens and, well, you're not? You know, what if what if aliens came and were only commuting, you know, the the kid, the TV people, we were horrified that aliens would reach out and touch our children, but children have less baggage and less history and less and more plasticity, hopefully. More plasticity. So certainly more capability for learning. Which has been proven over and over again. And some of the I'm gonna say there's there's things that I learned that I think helped me as both a human being and a writer. And that's something that I really wanted to say thank you to all of the, especially some of the professors that have come to talk about their books, because I love research for stories. Like if I'm setting something in 1901 England, yes, I know who was and wasn't queen and this and that and the other. I am fascinated by the weird, stupid little details like the great beer arsenic poisoning. Are these stupid little details? These were the, the core of life. It's kind of like, I have this Western story. Okay. How how prevalent was chewing tobacco use? Yeah. Oh my God. You know. Which is interesting because we're we've hit a point in US culture especially where news stories are, you know, quoting Twitter threads in order to get that sort of what does the man on the street say about this? But at the same time, yeah, when you're trying to get actual details, actual facts about things that happened, it's frustrating when a new story is nothing but man on the street. But when you're trying to recreate a period, man on the street is the be all and end all. There's, there's a danger. And I, because of something you were saying earlier, I know that you'll have a lot to say on this topic, but I, of course, currently work in a corporate world. And we had people that do corporate communications. And I had a girl call me up in tears once a while back that said, oh my gosh, there's all this negativity. Are we dying? Are we going down the tubes? I'm like, oh, honey, no. Have you been out reading like Glassdoor or something? <laughs> you you can't judge, you know, the high, somebody's highlights by somebody's blooper reels. And sometimes the we're just finding out what the man on the street says and fishing on a social media site to do it. They're so full of scamming and marketing and fake interest in trolling. you and trolling Oh my God, the trolling scams in the writing industry. Let's, I mean, I don't want to go into them, but I'm just roll my eyes a little bit and say, wow, if people are only looking at that. Also, I didn't realize that Goodreads was part of Amazon. My bad. But (laughs) that's happened in the last, well, I think it was pre pandemic, but not very much. (laughs) I'm so out of touch of who owns what anymore, but it, it makes me go look and say, ah, before I listen to this, who owns you? I mean, do you run our backbone? You run our website. You keep the podcast up and running. You figured out RSS feeds. Are, are you saying that nobody has tried to scam you yet? Or oh no, I get I get two to three emails a day, and some of them are probably from legitimate businesses, but they're not legitimate businesses that we would have any use for. And but tell the me majority tell me tell me one of them. Scams. I mean, tell me a funny story. <laughs> tell us. Well, a story. honestly, the funniest. One for me is that in order to leave a comment on our website, you have to create a login. We get hundreds of logins. They're clearly done by, you know, computers and they're they're being kicked out insanely fast. Every once in a while, someone who is a more personal touch scammer will actually leave a comment on the site and I have to read it and approve it. And there have been times where I'm leading it like that could be a decent comment, 
but their website is, you know, XYZ32465, and I think not. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is funny that there are, there are people who are clearly adding, uh, they're, they're putting some effort into their scam, and then there are other people who are running it through a computer program to do a million at a time. And we get them all. Are you saying that John 32486691 isn't, you know, going to marry me and give me a million dollars because I'm crushed? I'm pretty sure not. That general on Facebook isn't marrying anyone. Don't send General General Paul LaCamera. I mean, there's 32 of him. And just because I'm that sort of girl, I wrote to the North Korea Strategic Command and asked if there was any chance the general was on Facebook. And I was assured that no. The general Paula Cameron is not on Facebook. So if you out there are talking, especially if he's being romantic with you, no. Like, <laughs> you are being scammed. I follow Robbie Williams because I love his music. This last week, two different guys that looked like Robbie Williams that said, Robbie Williams said, oh, it means so much to me that you like my music. I want to connect. No, no, no. They desperately want to connect with your bank account. <laughs> And, and your friends, and, and they'd like to harvest all of what you're interested in so they know how to sell you more things. And it's got to be incredibly hard for actual marketing companies, for actual companies that are trying to sell something that would be useful to a podcaster because they have to make themselves both seem legitimate and try and get you to buy into a, a, a sale, you know, something, whatever they're selling. And it's a friend of mine is a visual medium artist and a sculptor. And through her, I learned that there are people that say, oh, we've done a contest. Would you like to enter our contest? It's $30. And if you win the contest, you will be able to have a display in our beautiful museum that only costs you $500 a month to keep your stuff there. And you can sell for any amount you want to. Hmm. Like, wow. So you have to pay to get in it and then pay to do it and then pay to, that's that's not real, people. Hey, it's almost as good as the uh, enter a contest to win money for a charity and tell your friends to vote. And you can always give extra money. And you, you get all the way to the last pool and then you don't quite win your second or third. So if your friends had just tried harder, you would win next time. Hey, we didn't win jerseys for our hockey team. You remember, Dean? Of course, if you don't ask for email addresses or get some sort of verification, what you end up with is Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, marketing. Something else that made it interesting for me in terms of the podcast, and one of it was the podcast made me very aware of how I speak and write and how other people speak and write and how sometimes that changes when you put a microphone in front of them. Certainly, podcast performance is something I'm now unfortunately judging writers on <laughs> since I edit so many of the podcasts. And that that was a change that we discussed as I'm not killing um, or ah, quite as frequently. I'm, I'm letting more natural speech through. But you can tell people who have podcast experience because they project a little more and they've removed those interjections, those specifically space-saving interjections because they hear themselves and it leads you to a more refined way of speaking in my mind certainly an easier to edit way <laughs> and every human on the planet has an interjection for some people it's silence for some people it's a word you know i went through theatrical training and they made a big deal about figure out what you're going to use and change it 
if you're playing a different character because yeah. it is one of the easiest ways to realize that, you know, this person talking to me on the phone saying that they're John and they were arrested, it's clearly not John because the interact interjections are wrong. And it's not something you think about, but when you hear it, it's instantaneously recognizable. It is absolutely true. I years ago worked with a woman who was involved with running her sales engineers. And we did a, a very brief internal podcast called, um, uh, you know, <laughs> and it was very much the, the fear that of leaving an empty space, a fear of asking a question and having a moment of silence, letting somebody else talk or interject and how much of a gift that is conversationally. Because I started realizing that I had friends that even conversationally didn't let you get a word in edgewise. <laughs> Sorry, Amy, I love you. <laughs> I come from a family where breathe in is when the other person starts talking. 100%. We just did a Zoom call the other night with, I think it was 13 people, and it was utter chaos. And we knew it was going to be utter chaos, and therefore we were amused by it. But somebody who politely waits for you to stop talking never speaks in my family. It's interesting because I was contemplating of how my friend Julie and I speak to each other when we carry on conversations of, I will be talking about one thing and she'll be talking about something else in a multi-threaded way. And there was a third person in the room that suddenly burst out, will you guys stop it? You're not even listening to each other. And we stared at him. But what do you mean? He says, Jeannie, what did she just say? I'm like, well, she was just talking about moving some furniture around at work and having to get an order in. And he blinked at me. And he's like, what did Jeannie just say? I'm like, oh, she was really kind of irritated about the fact that nobody was taking this vulnerability seriously and she needed to get a write-up done of it. And then he looked back before between the two of us. He's like, how? Like, Because we can listen and have different things come out, but it made me understand that that can be really confusing for others. And we have, we have proven, you know, over and over and over again, a large majority of writers are introverts. And no. being on a podcast, even if you're, you know, in your own house, at your own desk, with your own microphone, you're still, you're putting yourself out there. And finding people who, you know, stayed quiet and reserved through the entire podcast versus other people who, you know, bloomed and woke up and suddenly realized, hey, I'm safe, but also I'm talking. And then there was, you know, the, the third category of, oh, no, they have this covered. We're good. <laughs> Three very different editing jobs. Did you see the movie The King's Speech? Mm. There was a moment when he put the the headphones over the king's ears and made it so loud and had him say, just read this. And he read something aloud. And because he wasn't frightened by the sound of his own voice. And I wonder if there are people that have been told to keep your voice down. I mean, Dee, you have trained women how to play hockey. And you know, one of the hardest things we have is how do you teach adult women to yell, to project, to yell with clarity? Yelling does not mean anger. That kind of public speaking is, it's important. Rhetoric. They used to teach rhetoric in schools. Mm -hmm. Did either of you, because I had forensics, so I got rhetoric. Did either of you get it? Nope. No, I got speech. I did not get rhetoric. I didn't get either of them, but I did get theater. So, God bless theater. You got banned, right? I embrace the freedom of and and reject the tyranny of war. <laughs> As you do. All the things. All the things. Speaking of all the things, who should we get back on in 2024? Anyone who wants to. <laughs> oh, man. I'm glad you're the one answering all the emails from the people who want to come in. Although, actually, that's one of the things I would like to point out. 
the people I want on the podcast are rather predictable because my reading is rather predictable. The people who show up on the podcast are very different and have widened my mind and certainly entertained me better both in nonfiction and in fiction and given me better perspectives. Yeah, we definitely get a lot of, it's mostly agents. Every once in a while, the write-ups themselves, but mostly agents reach out and say, hey, I've got this person. Do you want them on the podcast? And in, in some cases, they're people who are not actually authors in any, like they're, they're, they're uh, public speakers, which they're writing their speeches, but it's really, I mean, we tend to focus on people who put stuff on paper. Um, mm. But the incredibly wide range of, you know, screenwriters and technical writers and poets and, and, you know, fantasy and sci-fi and fiction and everything. Agents out there doing their, doing the hard work. There was a woman that I reached out to saying she had been doing some PhD level translation of ancient Chinese poetry and other things, just moving it around. And she apparently also is an aficionado of Wuxin, Wuxia, Wuxia, probably saying that wrong. I am sorry for all of the people who speak either the Mandarin or Cantonese, but I it made me do the Wuxia, what's that? And I went down a rabbit hole. I'm like, holy crap, I've loved this my whole life and never even knew the word for it. So <laughs> for the, the cinephones out there, it's like the wandering warrior hero, lone wolf and cub, half of the Westerns, you know. And, um, oh, come on. No Marconi without mentioning him. Marconi. Yeah. So, th so there's a few that I've reached out to and said, hey, but I actually, and this is my my advice to people that have written out there. If you've written to us and we've missed it, oh, go ahead and try it again. Because sometimes we have way too much email and we miss things. Sometimes we have horrible, crappy falls like this one was. And I'm really sorry to everybody that I corresponded with and then dropped, please hit me up again. Do not ever think that you're being too pushy and that I will be offended. I'm not an agent. <laughs> and sometimes we just get behind and sick because that's been going on. So I apologize, but, you know, sometimes things get dropped because, yeah. And I think because one of the things that all of the writers had in common and said their wisdom to everyone is persistence Keep trying, keep writing, sit down and do a little something every day, you know, say, hey, I sent that note to them like three months ago and they've ignored me. And well, they probably weren't interested. Don't say that. Assume that everybody's email is chock full as yours is and try again. Or more full than yours is. Or even more full than yours is. We do tend to get things in like, you know, January 1st, we're going to get 12 and then nothing until March 1st when we're going to get another 12. So, and, you know, I respect that. And I think my understanding is there's a lot of agents that close for submissions at the end of the year. So I presume there's always something year end, year close, finishing the books, doing their thing. But eh, we're always open. We're just sometimes very slow. We will get around to you. And if you've been around, reach out to us again, because we love hearing from just about anybody. And I have read a ton of books that I would have never read before. If it had not been for this really neat podcast, I was not a memoir reader. And yet memoirs, I now realize, dear God, the importance of memoirs in history. Would we have ever learned that Ian Nazir was a copper cheat if somebody hadn't written down, carved into stone about the, the copper merchant? Mud, mud. All of these things are important. Everybody has an important story to tell that is 
the zeitgeist of their time, of their pool. So, And that was a piece of advice when we talked about the more horrible stories, is even if you find the story problematical, the voice in that story has importance. There may be someone who needs to hear that voice. So do not censor the negative voices. Let them have their say and do not be embarrassed by them. I think you hit the nail on the head, though, when the real cue of all of these methods of anything is just to carve out a piece of time where you write. It is not inspiration. It's not even discipline. It's habit. Just keep punching out the words and then make something of them. Yeah, because maybe you need other people looking at it to say, oh, oh, Jeannie, you've you've used the word slightly in every other paragraph here. You need to, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> or maybe you just need to let one go and start the next one. Or, but until you have the raw firmament, until you as a God create heaven and earth you can't start once you have mud you can start sculpting until you have mud though you don't have anything put the words down and and not the pen the words or the keyboard it's interesting to me because this podcast in in many ways is very much like joining a book club (laughs) yes (laughs) different people suggest the book to read and you read it and sometimes you hate it and sometimes you love it and sometimes two of you read two completely different books, even if it's the same title and author and page count. True story. I mean, makes me think of themes. But I, I want to say out there, if you're going to go into podcasting, what you really, really need is a web magician like Dee. So there are very few people, I think, that are doing it all. And I just wanted to take a moment and acknowledge Dee and Dave and John and all of the mixing and help that you guys have done and keeping it all moving because no no man is an island. The personal hummock of our common swamp is frail. And I wanted to thank you guys. This has been a lot of fun. You're very welcome. I would say to anyone looking at a podcast, you know, having two people at almost minimum, having three or four or five, it makes it easier. Even if you have to wrangle three or four or five people, we, we've met a couple of podcasters who are, who are, you know, one or two men shows and it's, I, I, my hat's off to Tim O'Brien. Yeah. We will put links to the fascinating things we've discussed on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. John and Deirdre, thank you so much for today. I thank really you, appreciate it. For the, the three years, two years, however many years of both, <laughs> 195 podcasts <laughs> so far. Jazz has gotten something pretty for, for t shirts for the 200th. So stick with us. <laughs> I hate to point this out, but we are about to start season six. So we have six January 1sts. Well then, okay. Okay. (laughs) You've been listening to Riders Drinking Coffee, which is clearly a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web magic is cast by Georgia Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music are both by Michael Ingberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, Everybody who's reached out and said, hey, can I be on your podcast? Because you are part of this. We are all part of the endless stream of storytelling. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.